sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. The sex and drugs and rock and roll, all the things that make life worth living. Isn't that right, Brian? We talk about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. Going to talk about songs today, but we'll end up talking a lot about bands and musicians. Uh, we've talked a little bit before about how this show was born out of a road trip that I took with some buddies on a snowy January night several years ago. We were jukeboxing in the car. You remember this story, of course. Yep. Listening to all sorts of old rock, and I kept finding myself telling stories, things like, hey, did you know what really happened with NXS? I was reminded of this recently because I remember specifically something else that happened on that road trip that was also rock and roll related, and that was showing the guys in the van that night another one of my favorite rock and roll road trip tricks, which is playing the back half of the album version of My Sharona by The Neck. Uh. Most people, myself included, for many years, consider that song sort of dumb. I didn't discover until like maybe the Reality bite soundtrack what's hidden at the end of that song and has been written out of most recollections, which is one of the most kick-ass guitar solos in rock and roll history. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. there's roughly 40 seconds of this solo in the original song. So you might be thinking, that solo's not that impressive, Brian. I've heard that solo. Let's do it. Okay, so this is all pretty good. This is the original guitar solo. And and then it ends right about here in the radio edit. But it does not end here in the album edit. Listen. Is it over? No. mean come I on instantly appreciate the song much more now dude it's so cool and it is completely doesn't have that reputation like people forget that that guitar solo is in there i love i, I love this description that i found uh louder sound uh classic rock mag made a list of the 100 best guitar solos this one made number 48 i would put it higher but this is how they describe it and I think this is really accurate. Avery starts his foreplay melodically, stating a simple hooky theme. As things heat up, he begins peeling off speedy licks, rising up the neck of his Les Paul, pushing the intensity into the red. At 3.38, when he locks into that high C, shaking the vibrato over six seconds, you think he's reached the climax, but there's more. 
There's, oh, that's such oh, what a great way of describing a guitar solo. It's like radio, like radio edits have destroyed guitar solos. This one definitely sweet child of mine. Oh, for sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one, right? So they, they jump, they jump from like the second chorus to the they don't even like the beginning of the guitar solo is gone. So th- this is actually what I why I brought this up, right? We're not actually here to talk about the knack, but I it, this made me think of other songs that have incredible back halves. So you know how the coda at the end of Layla goes, right? After all that guitar noodling. All of a sudden, the piano comes in. Yeah. Eric Clapton, Dwayne Allman come out and start sticking like big things in the back of people's skulls. Oh, wait, that's Goodfellas. I think about Goodfellas when I hear this. Ah, that, yeah, 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 that's a good one. That's a good point. All the dead bodies. So there, I, I've, I learned when researching this that there's a lot of people who think Dwayne Allman ruins this song, this particular part of this song. And I was curious about your your point on, or what you think about the tuning of his guitar. Oh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, the, I like I it. The, like, it's weird, yeah. but I like it. But it, it is a little bit technically out of tune. Yeah, sure. Um, Liz, Liz Fair said that she found out after her first record came out that her entire her guitar was out of tune the entire album. And that weird, it's like a strange thing to to find out when you're talking to somebody if you recorded something. I think it's interesting how the coda happened because I it sounds like a rough edit because it was a rough edit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is what I want to talk about. Right? Is that this sounds like a different song because. It's a different song. It's a totally different song. But I do think there's a generation of listeners who might not really know much about this coda because, depending on how old you are, the version of Layla you know might be different. Yeah, right. Uh, Because... MTV Unplugged. MTV Unplugged. So this song becomes a hit in charts multiple times. Interestingly, the first time it's... It isn't a hit. It doesn't work the first time. They release it without that coda, and it doesn't do anything. And then college, there's this college radio station that gets the album version like a year later and starts playing it all the time because they're a college radio station and they can. And it catches on, and all of a sudden, the band has already broken up. And they, they, right. have, they have this hit on their hands with all seven minutes of it. And now it is a classic rock radio staple. But when it comes back in 92 with Eric Clapton at MTV, he does it in a shuffle on an acoustic guitar. The coda is erased. And that's the version I grew up hearing. And that's the version I grew up playing on the radio when I was working in a, in a softer radio format and not in a classic rock format. So I always think of it more in that bluesy, Layla. Boom, you got me on my knees. And I don't like that song. <laughs> and I frankly don't love the Derek and the Domino's first two minutes and 50 seconds or whatever it is. But man, when that coda comes in, boom. Derek and the Domino's had other really great underrated songs. Bell Bottom, Bell Bottom Blues, which would get some play on on uh, AOR radio a little bit. Uh, and then I Looked Away, which was an opening track, I think on that same record was really good. But I grew up with that song, so I grew up with with that, and then I was transfixed when the song would change. It was a 
it was something that just it would catch my attention so yeah. much that as a kid I didn't really understand what was happening because it sounded like regal and different and sad and there's all kinds of things that happen. That guitar that's out of tune is perfect by not being perfect. Here's here's what Eric Clapton said about it. In 1988, he said, I'm incredibly proud of that song. To have ownership of something that is that powerful is something I'll never be able to get used to. It still knocks me out when I play it. It's also known, uh, I have never seen Clapton live. Have you ever seen Clapton live? Zero point zero no. So I, I it has for most of his career, been the defining ending moment of his sets. It's always sort of how he ends, from what I hear. Um, but what is this story about the coda? It's a totally different song. It's shoved into the back end of this song. It ends up making this song in a lot of ways, in my opinion. Uh, what is it? Why is it? Who's responsible for it? Let's get into this. Oh, man. If this is where we were ending up today, I had no idea. I thought we were going to be still being like Bebop Aluba with the, the knack, like, and here we are. <laughs> We, I mean, into some I do weird feel, places with I, Dwayne Allman here. I'm ready. So. I, I feel like we do other people a knack episode at some point, but that's not today. Today we're going to talk about Derek and the Dominoes. First, let's take this occasion to discuss the lyrical content of the song for a few minutes. Get that out of the way. For that, we got to leave the 1970s. We got to go to seventh century Arabia. Um, it's not where we normally end up. Uh, what? St- yeah, no. The song is inspired by the story of Layla and Majnun. Uh, this is one of those like foundational cultural stories of the East, right? So sort of like the Eastern Romeo and Juliet. I mean, if I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version, right? Translated into Arabic, into Persian, into Turkish. It's credited to a poet named Nizami Ganjavi because he actually writes it down. But it's one of those things that probably originated before him. And it really is a story about forbidden love. Uh, Mejnun means crazy. Uh, so basically, it is about a man kept from his childhood love, forbidden love, and he goes crazy in his mourning and his brokenheartedness. Now, the story goes that Clapton was either given or read this poem at some point, and it's pretty easy to speculate, mostly because he said it, that he saw himself in this story a little bit because he was in the midst of falling for his good friend's wife. Yeah, Patty Boyd, right? Yeah. And we've talked about that on episode three. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's episode three, and that is uh, an episode that you've likely heard. It's one of the most listened to episodes of this show. So that's the song itself from the lyrical, lyrical perspective, right? But let's talk about the music, because that's what we're here, really, that we're worried about. we got to refresh Clapton history for a moment. So we've talked quite a bit about Clapton on the show, so I'm not going to belabor it, but I do want to point out some key things on the timeline. 1970, so that means Yardbirds are done, Blues Breakers are done, Cream is done, Blind Faith is done. He's about to embark on his solo career, but he goes through this period where he like wants to be one of the guys instead of like the prodigy or the the big impressive front guy. And so he is playing in this band. And this is a band that I was not familiar with, but has a huge sort of fingerprint on this era of music. Delaney and Bonnie. Do you know yeah. this husband and wife duo? Yeah, and Clapton played with them. Totally so, weird. So Clapton's playing in their backup band. And, and the story goes that Delaney and Bonnie won't up the pay for the rest of their backup band at some point. And so they all jet. And they all decide that they're going to start their own effort. And this is what becomes Derek and the Dominoes. And the first gig they take is being the backup band on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. That's a pretty epic first gig. 
Yeah, I was going to say like George Harrison, I would have called in Eric Clapton and Billy Preston to fix this band situation. But all this seems to be working out perfectly. You so, can keep going. Let, well, let's let's zoom in on one of these guys. Because, yes, you're, you pointed out there's a lot of impressive players in the room at this point. But we need to talk about one of them. And his name is Jim Gordon. And he is not the commissioner in Gotham City. But he is named the same. Now, <laughs> his path to rock history starts when he's 17. He turns down a scholarship to UCLA to play with the Everly Brothers. Oh, wow. That's awesome. This turns him into a sought-after session drummer, and he becomes part of the loose affiliation that we now in musical history talk call the Wrecking Crew. Hmm. Anybody who is not aware of what the Wrecking Crew is, uh, the Wrecking Crew is a loose collective of L.A.-based session musicians who were on these massive number of hits in the 60s and 70s. Lots of Most of the top 40 things you know from those from that era, uh, these some collection of from this loose collective uh, were all on those records. Now, and for and for more info, the documentary is called "The Wrecking Crew." Very Don't good. Forget that. Very good easy. stuff. Um, at the height of his career, Jim Gordon reportedly so busy. This is a nice little factoid I found. So busy as a studio musician that he flies back to L.A. from Las Vegas every day so he can do a couple of recording sessions, and then he goes back to play a show at Caesar's Palace. Oh my gosh. That's how fun. in demand he is. So what fun that would be. Short list of highlights of where you can hear Jim, probably in your own record collection. Uh, he's on Pet Sounds. Uh, he's on the Notorious Bird Brothers. He's on Classical Gas. You can hear Jim. Huh. Now, if you pull out the liner notes to the album that becomes the only Derek and the Dominoes record called Layla and Other Love Songs, you will learn that most of the tunes on this record get credited to a combo of Clapton and a keyboard-playing badass named Bobby Whitlock. Mm-hmm. Oh. Comes from Stacks. Lots of cred there, too, but we won't get into it. But not the case with Layla. Layla is credited to Clapton and Jim Gordon. Now, the story goes that Clapton wrote the core of the song, that, that 245 that... We all know, and it's different forms by himself. And that when he and Bobby Whitlock start writing sessions, it's mostly considered done. They do some timing things and play with it and stuff eventually, but the core of it is done. And then early in the recording process one night, as they're working on this album, they're finishing up, and Tom Dowd, who produces the record, invites wow. Clapton to go hang out with him at an Allman Brothers concert. After the show, Clapton invites Dwayne Allman to go back to the studio to jam. Now, legend says that this jam lasts 18 hours. <laughs> I, I'm just going to skip ahead to my notes in my notes where it says everyone's doing a lot of drugs right now in this. Oh, yes. Let's let's continue moving. So eventually Dwayne Allman is going to end up on 11 of the 14 tracks that make up Layla and other assorted love songs. So he's never considered a, an actual member of Derek and the Dominoes, but he plays the whole record. And of course, he is on the title track and he speeds up the riff and he solos all over the place and he makes that song what it is in a lot of ways. Later, Bobby Whitlock will go on the record saying that he does not like the Allman guitar. This is what I brought up earlier. I think yeah. you and I agree that it's pretty good. That list of top 100 guitar solos uh, that has the kinks at 48, it has Dwayne on Layla at 16. But we're not really here to talk about the guitar. We're here to talk about the piano. We're here to talk about the weird ass coda. 
if Clapton wrote the first 245 himself, how did he end up with the other four minutes? Because that means he didn't write most of the song. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so but Jim Gordon wrote it, right? Okay. Well, yeah. Here's here's the story. Here's what we're going to find out. Like a lot of these good rock and roll bedtime stories, there are a lot of different versions depending on who you talk to. Let me tell you the Eric Clapton version of this story. This is I'm going to read a direct quote from Clapton. The piano part was a pure accident. This is from a great oral history on this song that is in the show notes that you can go check out. The piano part was a pure accident. It came from Jim Gordon. Uh, when the band left the studio, it turned out that unknown to us, Jim was sneaking back in and using the time to make his own record. Basically, that's what they call poaching in the record industry. One night, I went back to the studio to collect something, and I caught him. And he was playing that piano riff. And I think the deal we offered him was that we'd let him carry on using our studio time to make his record if we could have that tune for the LP. I don't think he ever did finish his album, but the piano theme fitted what we were doing perfectly, and now that song just doesn't sound right without it. So that's the story that was believed for years, that Jim Gordon wrote a piano riff, clapped and heard it, everyone noodled on their six strings, musical magic was made. But depending on who you ask, there is a very, very different version of the story behind this song. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you, and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. All right, let's leave LA recording sessions and lovesick wife-swapping musicians for a moment. <laughs> lovesick wife-swapping. Here's what I'm thinking. You want to go to Tennessee? You are from Tennessee. I love to hang out in Tennessee as much as possible with you both in a figurative sense and in an actual sense. I was telling someone the other day that I, I actually drove through Lewisburg uh, earlier this year because I wanted to see your birthplace. And I called yeah. you and you were like, what the hell are you doing in Lewisburg? Right. Like, I'm and at the Kroger buying Lunchables. Yeah. And, okay. And what'd you, what'd you think? Real fast. Um, it, it's got its charms, Mark. It's got its charms. I'm going to leave All it right. at that. I'm gonna leave it at that. So, uh, so go ahead. We're, we're not we're not gonna stay in Lewisburg, unfortunately. I, I don't think there's room at the end. But we're gonna go two hours north up uh, eight forty, and we're gonna go to Lafayette, Tennessee. You ever been to sure. Lafayette, Tennessee? I've driven through it. Birthplace of a certain woman named Rita Coolidge. Huh. Now, Rita, you probably know her. Because eventually she'll marry and sing sweetly and win a couple Grammys with Chris Christopherson. Oh, that's right. That's who that is. I forgot for a second. Now, later in her career, she will be one of the first hosts on a fledgling TV network called VH1 
also fun. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I can send you her headshot. It's it's real cute. Uh, but during the 70s and the 80s, she charts on not one, not two, not three, four billboard charts. She will chart on the pop, the country, the adult contemporary, and the jazz charts. Here's some of her recordings. You might know them. Maybe the most famous, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher. Uh, she does a, a song called We're All Alone. I'd Rather Leave While I'm In Love. And she is a soundtrack Bond girl. 1983's yeah, Octopus. Octopussy. All-time high. I like that that's the one you knew. You knew she did a Bond song. I'll say that, yes, I know. Because like that's where I was introdu- introduced to Sheena Easton. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure, for your eyes, your eyes only. What, what's the best Bond girl Bond song? Female sung Bond song. What's the best? I, one? I like for your eyes only. But I mean, that's probably that's just my age, though, because okay. I'm okay. I'm a Gen Xer, and that's sort of like I, the part that I'm, I, I'm a I, nobody does a better guy. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> what's that mean? <laughs> that, well, it's gonna be it's gonna be from a different era than mine, sir. <laughs> uh, well, at least, I'm you know I'm not an Adele guy. I like listen. I, I've got a little bit of a classic sense here. Okay, so uh, before any of that stuff that I just described, before she was singing "All Time High" on the Octopussy soundtrack, uh, she gets discovered by Delaney and Bonnie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> This husband and wife get around. Uh, now, remember, they are employing, before pissing off, the band that becomes Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah. So at some point, Rita Coolidge meets a guy named Jim Gordon. Now, this boost that she gets from Delaney and Bonnie gets her in the backup singing business. Uh, she will go on to sing backup for Joe Cocker, Harry Chapin, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix... Eric Clapton, Dave Mason, Graham Nash, and Stephen Stills, and Leon Russell. Do you know the Carpenter song Superstar? Of course you do. Sure I do. And the Sonic Youth version. Yeah, sure I do. So written by Leon Russell. And yes. Yeah. It, uh-huh. And he wrote it because he heard someone use the term superstar for the first time. Like I, I read the story and I was like, what? But I guess in the 70s, that wasn't a thing people said. The first time he heard someone say superstar... He was like, I'm really struck by that phrase. Guess who that person was who said superstar in front of him? It was Rita uh, Coolidge. It was Rita Coolidge? Really? Yeah. So and and you know that song Delta Lady that Leon Russell later writes? Yeah. Comes one of his signature songs? It's about her? It's about Rita Coolidge. Hmm, man. Interesting. Uh, Rita Coolidge has an autobiography appropriately titled Delta Lady. And I'm I'm going to read a little bit from that because Rita Coolidge obviously from the resume I just read has made some marks but according to her the biggest mark was one she never got credit for oh my gosh this is reading from Delta Lady I believe it was published in 2016 uh, one afternoon in 1970 Jim Gordon came over to my house in Hollywood sat down at the piano and played for me a chord progression he had just composed I loved Jim's progression but at the moment It was just a progression, a stunning riff and not a song. So as we played with it, a second progression suddenly came to me, a counter melody in the key of G that answered and resolved the tension of Jim's original chords and built a dramatic crescendo. I wrote lyrics that reflected the melody's sense of fatalism and hope, and Jim and I ended up calling it Time, and we taped a demo. 
we played the song for Eric Clapton when we were in England touring with Delaney and Bonnie. I clearly remember sitting at the piano at Olympic Studios. Eric listened to me play it all the way through. Bobby Whitlock also remembers this, and that is a key thing. Now, she says that in the book, and Bobby Whitlock is on the record in multiple places saying, this song was written by Rita Coolidge. Oh, man. Jim and I left a tape cassette of the demo with Eric, hoping that he might cover it, and then we'd get sweet royalties, right? Nothing comes of it, and I largely forgot about it, but our song with Jim's wistful melody and my sweet counter melody would come to haunt me the rest of my life. That's dramatic, but also true. In the autobiography, Rita goes on to describe the first time she hears Layla on the radio with the coda. She, She claims she's in a photo shoot, Murdoch, for her album. And the photographer goes and turns on the radio to add some noise to the room. And she's like, what? Wait a second. What is that? And she gets livid. Now, more from the book. When I get my hands on the album, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, I looked at the label, and it was credited to E. Clapton and J. Gordon. No R. Coolidge. I was infuriated. What they'd clearly done was take the song Jim and I had written, jettison the lyrics, tacked it onto the end of Eric's song. It was almost the same arrangement. And I have to admit, and I love this, I have to admit, it sounded stunning <laughs> she's so mad and then she even puts like but man it really works so i mean this is a pretty serious accusation uh yeah she got ripped off from a song that she should have an enormous amount of royalty well the, the big thing here that i think takes it from being just like Jim had messed around with this, had it in his head, is on a lot of drugs in the studio, sneaking into the studio. Eric hears it. Like, I sort of buy the Eric Clapton version of the story to a certain degree, but she claims they actually pitched him the song, which to me ups it a level of crappiness. Now, I mean, if we're going to launch a defense, let me read a quote from Clapton about that time period, and I've already alluded to this. There were a lot of drugs around the making of Layla. <laughs> it's literally that's a direct quote. There was a nest of dealers in Miami close to the studio who supplied us with whatever we wanted. At first the drugs didn't seem to have an adverse effect on the work. It would kill me today, but we were very fit at the time and it seemed that we could handle it okay. And before we knew it, we had a double album. That's right, they sure did. And well, remember Shortly after this, Clapton goes full-blown heroin addict. And Dwayne Ullman dies. So all these folks are on a lot of drugs and they are not reliable narrators or rememberers. Yeah. I had the I had the box set of so it's three I had a three disc box set for this this record. And the liner notes in it explained that at some point it like had a something that they remembered that it would be practice or rehearsal day. And then one of them would be out outside in the car. It would be like too messed up to get out of the car or didn't want to get out yeah. of the car. Yeah, for sure. And like that's, that's how, how things had progressed to like a halt with just the paranoia and everything else that was going down with. Well, and know, this is what happens with the second here. record. Like the reason we never get the second record is they all get so messed up and paranoid and they're fighting it's all it's because they're on drugs they're on terrible amounts of drugs so they just 
they disappear. And then Layla becomes this massive hit. I mean, it's all sort of strange because of Eric Clapton is one of the only characters in music history who just ripped through these different musical formations in the first 10 years of his career. Like, yeah, it's strange. There's not really anybody else who does this very successfully. You're right. And, and the, the, the type of things that he touched, like touching the Yardbirds, like immediately like knighted him in rock and roll history. Right. But and he's, he and he's young. And then he plays music for the next, I mean, what's he going on? 50, 60 years at this point. I mean, lots, yeah. lots of the, musical the, contributions. The fake COVID didn't get him either. But like Cream, like Cream was right after yeah. Derek and the Dominoes, yeah. and then he the solo the solo stuff into the seventies was was great too. I mean, is very successful for sure. So if you're Rita, what do you do? She claims she tells everybody she knows who she thought could help her at all um, about what happened. I've been ripped off. Here's the situation. We pitched this to Clapton, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody she talks to in the music business and elsewhere is like, you will never win that case. Clapton's lawyers are too good. That's all sort of circumstantial evidence. And good luck. And so, and you will get buried and you will lose a lot of money. Well, she's going to lose a lot of money one way or the other, right? Gosh. Now, of course, at this point, this is right when that song starts to pick up as a single, so it's not even a success yet. So who knows? I mean, she doesn't know at the time that it's going to become Eric Clapton's closer for like 30 years of his career. <laughs> right. Now, here's here's what she does do. Rita has a sister. You, you maybe haven't heard of Rita's sister, Priscilla, but you've probably heard of the guy she was married to for 10 years. From 1969 to 1979, Priscilla Coolidge was married to a guy named Booker T. Jones. Mm. Yeah. And if you don't know Booker T. Jones, you've probably heard of Booker T. and the MGs. Um, If you want to see something really fun, Murdoch, I saw this and I was like, oh my God, Mark's going to lose his mind. There is a link in the show notes to a photo from 1972 when Priscilla was with Booker and Rita was with Chris Christopherson and they got together for like a family thing. Oh, that sounds fun. So they're all in this big group, and you're like, that is a very young Chris Christopherson, Rita Coolidge, Booker T. I mean, it's it, it's great. It's a great picture, and it's 1972, so it, it's very 70s. But anyway, Priscilla, also a musician, and, and Booker T produces her first album in 1970. It's called Gypsy Queen, and then they put out three records as a duo. So much like Rita and Chris, they the, they have some success as a pair. They put out an album in 1971 called Booker T and Priscilla. 1972, they put out an album called Homegrown. And in 1973, they put out a record called Chronicles. And it's not been well explained in anything I could find as to exactly how this happens. But when it comes time to record Chronicles, it seems that Rita slipped her sister and brother-in-law a little something. A little something they could put their own spin on. And that is how we've ended up with this recording, sort of a rare, hard-to-find recording, Booker T. and Priscilla Jones' Time.
like I said, not an easily available song to find, but man, it's a stone cold jam. I mean, it just reinforces how great that piano riff is. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely it's, beautiful. It sounds like it's in just a little bit of a higher key. Yeah, yeah. So this is where I'd like to end the story. Like sort of this sweet, optimistic form of like universal justice, right? But there's a much, much darker way to tell the end of this story. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, ahead, I mean, Brian. it's it's pretty dramatic. I, I think the best way to end this story is by giving each major player in this tale a coda of their own. Now, the coda that I'm about to tell for each of this per- these people conveys that there seems to be almost a curse on this song. Everyone associated with taking this song from Rita, there's something pretty rough that happens to him. Now, the obvious place to start is Clapton. Right. Tragic Plenty. loss of his child. We talked about this in episode 88, Clapton versus Tragedy, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But again, if you want to go back in the catalog, check that out. We go into great detail about what happens to him. It is rough. So I'll leave that there. But let's take a look at Jim Gordon. This drummer who is on so many hit songs and so many amazing albums, who was flying back and forth between Vegas and L.A. at the height of his career. He's also a man who did, much like many other men in this story, a lot of drugs. Heroin, cocaine, alcohol. Correct. Rita Coolidge is on the record explaining it like this. When talking specifically about how their relationship was rough, they weren't together for very long. She didn't put up with it for very long. But this is what she says. In hindsight, looking back, I went, well, he was doing blow. He was just over the edge. Because if you're doing excessive amounts of drugs and you have already a predisposition or active mental illness, it will be exacerbated by drugs and alcohol. So I just figured that's what had happened. It never occurred to me. I mean, he had been violent with me in the past for absolutely no reason. But I didn't know anything about the voices. I don't know if he was hearing voices then. But I imagine he probably was. Probably a voice told him to take me out in the hall and punch me. I never went near him again after that. I didn't want to deal with him on any level because I was afraid of him. And as she alludes to here, in the back half of the 70s, Jim Gordon starts to wrestle with a full-blown acute schizophrenia. You ever known a schizophrenic? (sighs) Yeah. Different types, right? But as Rita points out, Jim was the type who hears voices and is paranoid. Yeah, the audio and paranoid thing is something I'm familiar with with someone. Yeah. And he starts to have these full-blown delusions. Now, you might remember J.D. Souther. He writes songs with the Eagles. He was in a short-lived musical project with Jim, and they toured for a while. And here's a quote he has to say about Jim. Um, And it's sort of during this time in the 70s. He says, he was becoming unhinged. We didn't know exactly how much because you couldn't tell that much. But he was a social nightmare, and he was great on stage every night. He never messed up. He played brilliant sets, and then one night he passes out in the urinal waiting to go back on for the encore. He was completely unpredictable, but never played badly. Now, reading from an article where I pulled that quote from, Souther maintains that although everyone around him was aware of Gordon's issues, nobody could have predicted what the future held for him. Quote, we knew he was a mess, but nobody knew what kind of mess. Now, 
How big of a mess was he? Jim Gordon becomes convinced in the early 80s that his mother is evil. And when I say evil, he becomes specifically convinced that his mother has killed Karen Carpenter and comedian Paul Lind. Oh, my gosh. And in 1983, he bludgeons his mother with a hammer and then stabs her with a butcher knife. And he is currently still in prison in California. Yeah, he's not getting out for that. Uh, he actually was up for parole in 18 and denied. And I did read something that cheekily stated that he plays drums in a prison band. I do not know if that is true or not. Yeah. Now, that would, again, I said like earlier, like, this seems like a good place to stop. I'd like to stop there, too. Wildly, there is one more tragic code out of all of this. Priscilla, Rita's sister. So the Booker T marriage doesn't last. She has another marriage or two. And then she marries a guy named Michael Siebert. And now I'm switching to a news article from the Ventura County Star from 2014, October 5th, 2014. A woman killed by her husband before he turned the gun on himself in an upscale Thousand Oaks neighborhood was identified Saturday as Priscilla Coolidge, a singer who was the sister of music star Rita Coolidge. Quote, words cannot express the devastation of our family and what we are feeling with the loss of my sister Priscilla, Rita Coolidge said in a statement to the Star. We're asking for privacy during this time. Police found the bodies of Priscilla Coolidge, who was 73 at the time, and her husband, Michael Siebert, 66, in the 1600 block of Cal Rochelle after a distraught family member reported a disturbance at 5.12 p.m. on Thursday. Priscilla died from a gunshot wound to the head in what was ruled a homicide. Man, you said <laughs> devastating stuff. And I also read you. I mean, the obvious question here is Rita Coolidge. Is there a coda for her? Well, Rita Coolidge is still alive doing okay. But in this story, there was a mix up and the ashes of Michael Siebert, the man who kills her sister, get delivered to her house. Oh, I did read that just sort of as an aside in an article. That's awful. I mean, it's a very, very, very dark story. I'm not somebody who hears a story like this typically and is like, you know, black magic or curses or, you know, anything like that. But like, it's really strange that there was so many tragic ends and tragic happenings to every player except for Rita. And now... As if Goodfellas wasn't sad enough, the next time you hear Layla, you have something else to ponder. It's interesting to think about the fact that maybe uh, she was a protected, a protected soul from all these people that are out of their faces on heroin and cocaine, trying to have this amazing guitar solo coda band, coda song. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, if you want to get involved with the show, it's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can check us out at, at wearethestoryguys.com. You can leave reviews, messages, all that sort of stuff. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Don't poke people's brains with big wires, but keep telling stories. Run.
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.